Okay, thank you very much um, for this opportunity for Ali Reza and I to talk about um, some of our work together. So let's go for it, Ali Reza, if we go for the first slide. We're thinking about free speech um, and scholarly criticism in the Islamic tradition, but more than that, in, in, uh, in, in the round, we're taking an anthropological approach to these issues. So what do we mean by that? First and foremost, we mean a comparative approach. Um, so Alison was just talking about the way in which um, certain sorts of Orientalist tropes would deny um, any place to free speech within the Islamic tradition at all. We don't want to see this issue through those uh, monolithic Orientalist um, supposedly liberal uh, terms. We want to understand them from a comparative uh, point of view to look at um, uh, the way in which speech is free or otherwise you know, across many traditions. Uh, and we're focusing in particular on the Islamic tradition in the context of this uh, conference in our research. Um, and we need to realize, uh, in addition to that, to the fact that there are a wide variety of approaches to the ethics of speech across the world's cultural traditions, that even within the Islamic tradition itself, there are there is, of course, a diversity of approaches um, to um, what we're going to talk about as reason criticism. And also there are uh, within the liberal tradition itself. So there are a very diverse set of views uh, in both the Islamic and liberal traditions. Uh, and our starting point for thinking about what um, the limits to uh, free speech um, in the public sphere, let's say, uh, might look like uh, in the Islamic tradition, was starting with a start uh, our thought from a piece by Talal Assad, who I'm sure is known to many of you, uh, his work. Um, and in his genealogies of religion, he has a piece about the limits of religious criticism in Saudi Arabia. And he's engaging exactly with this idea that um, in the Islamic Middle East, um, there simply isn't the possible for public criticism, criticism in the public sphere. Um, and um, he, he wants to uh, take on that notion by saying, by showing that there are forms of public critique available, particularly critique of um, the Saudi Arabian state. Um, and he's thinking about the ways in which religious scholars can um, uh, give a reasoned critique of, of state policies in the public sphere in certain forums. So certain kinds of speech, certain kinds of criticism are allowed, in his view. They, they, they take place in uh, khutbas, religious sermons, but also in um, religious lessons, uh, in the seminary. Um, and um, they, they need to be phrased in a certain kind of way. They need to be ethical in the sense that they are um, in good faith, um, that it's not just uh, criticism, it is, it is given in the form of advice, nasiha. Um, so we should try and shape um, the uh, behavior, the moral behavior of the state as, it, as, as indeed we should of the whole of the population. So, so this reason critique comes through forms of ethical speech in the sense that there's a right way of doing it, but also that this is discourse designed to shape people's religious virtue. And he refers also to the Islamic duty to command right and forbid wrong. Um, and so he thinks that this points to a very different approach in, his, in the Islamic tradition that um, the state, a, a well-governed polity should be concerned with shaping uh, virtuous um, uh, citizens 
uh, as opposed to uh, the modern liberals, liberal state, which in his view is concerned instead with the administration of the population rather than individual uh, moral virtue. Um, so that's his view. We don't altogether agree with it, but Ali Reza will uh, go on and tell you uh, more. Yeah, so uh, I mean, we disagree with Talal Assad on a number of counts, but we do recognise and pick up his um, the value in giving attention to ethical speech, okay, as a form of reasoned criticism within Muslim communities. So we think focusing on ethical speech allows for an exploration of many of the issues which have already been raised today, actually, but without the heat of those major controversies, major controversies like the Danish cartoons, Charlie Hebdo publications in Europe, or the use of apostasy laws, yeah, and the repression of political activism in Muslim majority contexts. So these are, of course, highly charged, highly relevant um, controversies. We think focusing on the practice of ethical speech can help us address some of the issues underlying these controversies, but without the heat and allowing for like some um, deeper, reflective, critical analysis. We think it can help us identify shared challenges. You know, again, um, building on some of Alison's comments there, you know, bringing the conversation across and within these different traditions, okay, in debates over the limits to free criticism, rather than simply differences, okay, with the liberal tradition. Okay? Um, and in, in particular, the tension which we hope to speak about, or one of the core tensions, which Professor Kadiva already highlighted very, very well, actually, is the tension in the value of free scholarly expression versus the risks of potential societal harm in our increasingly shared global public. Okay, um, And we think this um, analysis can actually prompt some novel Fiki analysis um, towards principles that can help us think through these tensions. Right, thank you. And so, um, as an as taking an anthropological approach, as we do, we also want to ground our discussion in concrete cases. And so, we're drawing here on some ethnographic research we've done, some recent field work in the last few years, uh, conducted among and with the help of the uh, British Twelver Shi Khuja community. And we're very grateful to them for their assistance. And um, this was actually part of um, a, a, a separate study on people's um, uh, everyday practice of Sharia, of, of Islam's religious rules. Uh, we've conducted 60 plus interviews. And so those deal with a, with a wider range of issues. Uh, and the project wasn't concerned with ethical or free speech per se. But in the context of that research, we were just really struck by just how much of this ethical speech, how much speech, how much discourse there is within the community. There's so many sermons, so many religious lessons available uh, in uh, the um, community centres, but also online. So there's a huge amount of this speech. But also what was very striking is that this speech can be controversial and it has its risks. We're not perhaps thinking of the risks that Assad was thinking of in, in the context of Saudi Arabia. But um, this speech can be uh, controversial in the sense that, of course, the Shi tradition is itself very diverse and, and debated. So there are controversies, intellectual controversies within it. And for the uh, UK community in particular, um, the, this, uh, the experience of a, of, a, of a diaspora community that has migrated uh, across the world and is uh, trying to live out their religion in the context of the contemporary UK, in the minority context, that creates all kinds of um, 
uh, tensions and concerns about honoring Islam's religious rules um, and um, uh, the uh, theological teachings of their tradition. So there's lots of tension there, lots of lots of things to debate. Um, many of the people we spoke to worried that some of the ideas that they were, you know, came through to them through the community's teaching don't make sense in the context of the contemporary UK. Um, and um, it's clear that many people are engaging with themselves personally and with the wider uh, realm of progressive approaches to what it means to be a Muslim in contemporary UK. Okay, so um, to some examples about this tension between scholarly expression, you know, and potential societal harm. So we saw examples, although we weren't speaking with people who positioned themselves as scholars on the whole, okay, we did speak to some, okay. Um, and we saw an example of a scholar limiting their own speech, all right? And so this is an example of a woman preacher, or Zakir, referred to as a Zakir Amuliani with global recognition and reputation, okay? So ascending pulpits, um, a consultant teaching in, in madrasas, okay? And not in pro progressive communities, okay? In mainstream communities which consider themselves as orthodox. So she said to us, I was brought up as a child, okay, I won't read this all, she was said she was brought up as a child with the idea that she should pray while in a state of hayyid. Okay, so while she was in a state of menstruation, she would pray. And that's my lifelong practice. I tell that to my children. And she said, show me a place where this is written and tell me that it's authentic. So she contested the, the, um, the dominant, the overwhelming dominant, I mean, overwhelming is understated, um, the dominant view that a woman does not pray in a state of, pray the ritual, salat al-wajibah during, Hey, but she went on to say, this is my practice. I tell my children, she says, but I would not express this view openly. Because she says, I cannot, I would not express it. I speak from the pulpit, I speak from the mimba. I wouldn't because I would not want to break the fabric of society or tear it, but I will gradually introduce it for my students, with my friends, with whoever it is. I will tell them this is the way I feel. So here she speaks of limiting herself out of a fear for possible harm. Right and wrongs of the mas'ala, we're not interested in for the purpose of this example. Right, so that's an example of, of somebody feeling that they need to limit their own speech um, uh, because you know, they don't necessarily think that the, the congregation is, is, is ready to hear some of those ideas. But we also saw examples of people's speech being limited by others uh, at the community level. Now, some of these were quite sort of low level um, incidents, although, you know, it was striking to hear about them. So, for example, we were we were talking um, with a community leader who, who told us how there had been a discussion on the on the um, local associations executive committee about banning a speaker who'd come and had talked to a youth society um, about their attitudes to um, various mourning practices um, and um, uh, the speaker's own attitude towards um, weeping in such contexts uh, and questioning some received ideas. Um, and so some of the, uh, when, when the children had gone home and told their parents about it, then some of the parents were not impressed. How dare he, you know? Um, but the, the thought was that this kind of discussion it was had had been held in the wrong context. It should have been held in his dar, in a dars kharij class in a higher level research seminar rather than with uh, a youth groups. And what was the response? Let's ban him. You know, shouldn't be allowed to um, do this kind of thing. Um, now, um, 
of course, um, as I'm sure you're all aware, there have been higher profile um, such incidents. Um, so one that we refer to here, um, uh, Professor Abdulaziz Sashadina, who's I'm sure you know a colleague and well known to many of us, and I, and I only raise it because it's a matter of public record, but that um, in the 1990s, um, uh, a dossier, a, a compilation of some of his teachings that were uh, thought unorthodox by some people within the community was sent to Sayyid Sistani um, to get his opinion on them and, and effectively ended up uh, with um, Professor Sashadina not being uh, invited to speak um, in a religious capacity within community institutions, so quote-unquote being banned from doing so. Um, and there has been another recent such um, uh, effort um, to um, stop another progressive scholar um, speaking at religious events in the community, um, which is also a matter of public record, although in a, in a generalised, anonymised form, although I know that the case will be known to uh, some of those present, which also culminated in a letter to the office of Sayyid Sistani, who is, who is seen as, as, as the community's marja, in general terms, whether somebody should be allowed to talk about um, these kind of ideas. Uh, and the response was, again, that it's inappropriate for um, a preacher, the muballir, to use the mimbar, the pulpit in particular, so this focus on the pulpit, to spread his personal opinions which create division amongst religious people. So again, certain kinds of speech are seen as worrying uh, and uh, are to be limited. Okay, so what do we see? We see actually it's contesting the place for reasoned critique here, all right? Critical debate, again, as Professor um, Kadiva emphasized towards the end of his talk, is, you know, is um, deeply embedded in, you know, deeply embedded within Hausa culture, all right? You know, we see this workshop as an extension of that, you know? And in Islamic learning, more generally, traditional discourse is, of course, under considerable critique, all right? For various reasons we don't need stating. And, and, and that's, that's nothing new. You know, the likes of the Ayatollah Khomeini or the Sheikh Bakr al-Sadr were again seen as critical of traditional discourses of their own day. What is at stake in our examples or the aspects of them which we're highlighting today is controversies about where and when such critique can be expressed. Right? Rather than the legitimacy or indeed the need for such critique itself. Preaching at the pulpit and here we can understand pulpit in a broader sense, you know, with the change with YouTube and social media and the rest of it. Preaching which is directed to the masses, okay, or teaching which is openly accessible to all, not in the closed circles, which again Professor Kadiva mentioned. This is especially sensitive. And we can see a tension between scholarly freedom and the need to protect non-scholars from possible harm. We think this is interesting for both comparative and for fiki analysis. Right. So if we if we start with a comparative perspective, Talal Assad in his in his uh, piece about the limits of religious criticism in Saudi Arabia um, takes on this um, supposed um, opposition between the Islamic tradition and the liberal tradition. And he takes his exemplar of the uh, liberal uh, modern tradition as Immanuel Kant, seeing him as, the, as a great geneal genealogical founding father in this tradition. Uh, and also because Kant was writing uh, under an absolutist state himself, under the uh, rule of uh, Frederick the Great initially. So he, he digs into Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment? 
Uh, and what we think is really interesting here is that Kant makes much the same kind of point. He distinguishes between two different kinds of speech before two different kinds of audience. So he, Kant says, look, in public, man in his um, sexist um, terms of the time, uh, people's reason must always be free in its public use, but in private use, um, your reason might be uh, restricted. So there's two different sorts of contexts which which uh, might limit one's speech. He has, a, he has a particular way of understanding this distinction between public and private. Um, so he, he thinks, and it's a slightly unfamiliar way of putting it for us now, but he thinks of um, one's private use of reason as taking place in the context of, of, of one's job, essentially, uh, the, the office with which you're entrusted. And his example of that, interestingly, um, is um, uh, a religious uh, teacher, a priest. The clergyman is supposed to instruct his pupils, his congregation, in accordance with the doctrine of the church he serves. So he should just teach the teachings of the church there in his private um, uh, his sort of professional um, uh, position, but in public, um, as a man of as a person of learning, as a scholar addressing the reading public, he is free as well as obliged to impart uh, his ideas and suggestions for a better arrangement of religious affairs. So what Kant is arguing is that he thinks that an enlightened ruler, as he is hoping that Frederick the Great was, um, would uh, be would want to hear about reasoned critique of public affairs uh, and shouldn't be afraid of it. Uh, and so that one has uh, a duty uh, as a person of learning to impart one's ideas in public before the reading, uh, the reading public. However, um, under uh, Frederick the Great um, passed, passed away and then Frederick William II came along who had less uh, enlightened ideas. Uh, and in fact, Kant was, was forced to withdraw his teachings on religion within the limits of reason alone um, uh, because it was felt unsuitable for the wider non-scholarly audience. So the fear was, again, that it would escape the bounds of the academic world uh, and the general public would come to hear these radical ideas and might be misled by them. And so Kant, too, is, is putting forward and, and um, suffering under uh, this tension between what one can do in a scholarly sphere uh, and what one can do otherwise, um, what has been called his two hats doctrine. It depends what, what role you're occupying. Um, and again, I mean, we see echoes of that in the way that Sayed Sistani uh, discusses this issue with regard to the case that we this, um, I mentioned before. It's not right for somebody who addresses the general public to present specialist issues when the audience can't uh, understand them at the, at the, as per the required academic standards. So we see similarities there. It is a very interesting comparative case. Okay, so we see shared tensions. Okay, shared tensions, which we can see in both, you know, this, this vision of, uh, of, of Kant, if, if we accept him as a paradigmatic figure of, uh, of liberal thought, um, Muslim practice. And of course, we think there's shared challenges as well. Of course, there's clear differences in the nature of authority between these two contexts and the potential sanction over scholarly freedom and the limits to speech. Um, the Ayatollah cannot assume obedience as um, you know, Kant's king could, okay? And there is no church, famously, as it is described you know, in Islam. But beyond these differences, there's a clear shared concern here over the appropriate setting for critical reason speech, okay? Um, 
excuse me. Right, Is that time up? We still have <laughs> Yeah? Okay, all right. So we've got shared concerns, okay, over the appropriate setting for critical reason speech. Why? Due to possible risk for non-scholars, all right? Of course, the pulpit, as we've said, and pulpit, again, we can imagine this in a broader notion, a wider sense of pulpit, is the, which is the paradigmatic site for ethical speech, is the most charged, the most sensitive. Reason difference, rhetorically at least, is acceptable amongst scholars, or more acceptable amongst scholars. Our question now is what happens to scholarly reasoned expression when the public spheres and spaces are increasingly shared? You know, the breakdown between public and private, okay, is sharp and intense in our current settings. The ability to preserve the boundaries between scholarly discussion and public consumption is increasingly difficult. We don't know who's recording a clip of us, okay, or where it will be posted, okay, and how far and wide it will go, okay, within a few minutes. Okay, the ability to preserve the boundaries between scholarly discussion and public consumption is increasingly difficult, if not impossible. We think this shared tension um, could be conceived of in abstract Fiki terms. So we'll end, I'll end with this slide. It's a prompt for the Fukaha who are present here. Of course, it's in ab abstracted terms, but if we see this tension in Fiki terms, maybe we could consider it as a potential case of tazahum. So a conflict at the level of implementation, at the level of duties. On one hand, we have a duty, the scholar, the student even, yeah, the ordinary person has a duty not to conceal knowledge. We could formulate this as which corresponds, arguably, you know, or correlates to an obligation to disclose one's knowledge, which would, if hard on sticking with it as a duty not to conceal knowledge. This could be seen, okay, in tension with a duty to ward off possible harm. Wajub dafa'a dharar al-muhtabar. The current situation is such, okay, is that any expression of knowledge, or almost every expression of knowledge, every expression of reason criticism, is potentially a case of possible harm. So what do we do? Now, if we see this as a case of tazahum and follow the typical principles of um, Shia usuliyun, the preference ought to be given to the most important value, the ahamman milakain. For sure, scale and nature of possible harm is clearly relevant. But sticking with the abstract Fiki terms to help us think through these tensions, it seems to me at least, that scholarly imperative of expressing knowledge is more important. This is the aham duty. The harm here is only possible. It's not actual. Hence, the duty to ward it off should be read as less important. Plus, I think there's obvious societal harm for the curtailing of a culture of scholarly discourse and reasoned criticism. It seems to me that the increasing potential cases of conflict should absolutely not restrict the more, the more important duty of free, reasoned, scholarly expression in a liberal context or otherwise. Okay, okay, so I'll just repeat that final point. It seems to me that in the in the increasing, um, you know, with the increasing potential co of of conflict, 
Okay, the more important duty of free reason scholarly expression yeah, should not be restricted. In a liberal context, we see this reduction to popularism, okay, or in a, a Muslim context, this restriction to conservative, okay, non-controversial speech in our public spheres. In both cases, we have to maintain the duty for free reason scholarly expression. Thank you.